Hello and welcome to OEG Voices. OEG Voices. OEG Voices. OEG Voices. A podcast bringing to you the voices and ideas of open educators from around the world. OEG Voices is produced by Open Education Global, a member-based nonprofit organization supporting the development and use of open education globally. Learn more about us at oeglobal.org. There's much to take in at the global level. We hope to bring you closer to how open education is working by hearing the stories of practitioners told in their own voices. Each episode introduces you to a global open educator. And we invite you to later engage in a conversation with them in our OEG Connect community. Hello and welcome to OEG Voices. This is our podcast that we produce at Open Education Global. Each episode brings you people, personalities, and ideas of open educators from around the world. And I get to be your host, Alan Levine. And this week is really special because here and elsewhere, because we're in the first day of Open Education Week. And what I have done the last couple of years is to find two sessions to record one of these podcasts where we not only record it, but we offer spaces for other people to join in and listen. We have guests in the studio, which is exciting. But what's really special is that we're able to line up for this episode, someone I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. And we're really proud to have Delmar Larson, the director of the Libertex Project, also who finds time to be a professor of chemistry at UC Davis. Some of this is in later recognition of the two OE awards for excellence for open curation and open infrastructure that went to Libertex. I'm hogging the microphone here. I want to give a chance to Delmar to say hello and tell us where are you sitting right now with that lighting that you were describing earlier in the <laughs> podcast? First, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Alan. At least virtually here, that is. I am sitting in my office in the chemistry department in the University of California, Davis, in Davis, California. And I have lots of sun on at least one half of my face, but that's characteristic of being in a window in the Central Valley. Yeah. And I'd like to ask, where'd you grow up? Where were you raised? Oh, that's a loaded question. And we might touch upon that a little bit. I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. I spent the first six years of my life in Anchorage, Alaska. And then I spent another five-ish years puttering around Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri a little bit. And then ultimately from about 12 years old until about 22. I was in Seattle, Washington. That's a lot of moving around. What kind of student were you? What did school to young Delmar? It depends upon how young you mean. So I actually was failing everything up until sixth grade, with the exception of science, completely failing. I was in a special education. Not that's failing, but that was where they placed me for a period of time. And then I switched school only once to twice every year. So the first year that I started and ended in the same school was in seventh grade. And then the next year that I did that was 10th grade. And I just happened to go to one school that everything was aligned right. And, and I was not failing anymore. And I really don't have a good reason to explain that. And that happened around sixth grade. Mr. Hansen was his name. And I don't think that that teacher particularly liked me. It wasn't that it didn't resonate with me. It was just something happened when I got there. That's fantastic. And first you went into chemistry, right? Yes, I've always wanted to be a chemist. The biggest issue I had was whether I wanted to be a physical chemist or an organic chemist or a biochemist. And it became clear that I loved math and I loved physics, so I became a physical chemist. Actually, I became a biophysical chemist. For those who in the house who aren't real understanding the chemist, what are the major sort of 
differences between physical and I already forgot the other ones. <laughs> Bio and organic. Yeah. Because everybody took, I remember people like talking in fear of having to take organic chemistry. Yeah. Organic chemistry is considered the gateway class. How would I describe it? Physical chemistry is, is a mixture of physics and chemistry. It, it doesn't involve synthesis so much or at all. It's more of physicists that are not afraid of chemicals is a good way in order to describe that. The rank and file chemists that do the synthesis, wet lab and things like that, they might not consider us to be terribly chemistry oriented. But if I go to the physics department, the way I view things is very different from the way they view things. We're stuck in a middle between physics and chemistry. And let's play this out. Where did you go to university? My first two years, I went to Edmonds Community College, which is a community college in up, not upstate, it's <laughs> north of Seattle. And then after that, I transferred to the University of Washington. So I transferred in 93, graduated with my bachelor's degree with distinction in 95. And then I went to the University of Chicago, where I was there for two years. But my graduate advisor was, by and large, purchased by Berkeley. And so I had to move the lab from Chicago to Berkeley in my third year of graduate education. So then I completed the last three and a half years in Berkeley. Then after that, I got my PhD and I went to do a postdoc in the Free University of Amsterdam for three and a half years. That was largely because I needed to recoup because the Berkeley experience was exceedingly destructive on my brain as it is for many people. And then after three and a half years in Amsterdam, I repatriated, although I did it grudgingly because Europe was great, um, back to LA for a year. And that was really quite a shock. And then from there, I went to Davis. So it bounced around, not just when I was younger, but also when I was older, but that's a standard academic life. And so what is the origin? How did you end up coming up with the idea or for creating LibreText? What was the spinoff for that? I became a professor in 2005, an assistant professor. And if you're applying for Science Foundation grants, uh, there's the actual research that you propose, and there's a component called broader impacts. And broader impacts are meant to be efforts that better the community, which is, in my opinion, a good thing to have with any project that involves lots of money. That's any public funded project. Those projects I found to be oftentimes falling into several categories inner city school, students, a new class, running a workshop or sort of thing. And I wanted something somewhat original. So I was trying to think about what I wanted to do for a while, but I couldn't really come up with, with something original. It just doesn't turn on like a moment. But then I taught a class in my second year. It was a physical chemistry class for life sciences. And so it was predominantly students that were looking for nursing or medical professions. And uh, took a first edition by a very famous physical chemist, this massive textbook author. And the book was $200, which was pretty pricey back then, still pricey now, but it was, you hear more, <laughs> more issues now than then. And it was a first edition just off the press. And this guy had made books for decades. I learned from several of his books. It was even his physical chemistry book. So when I looked over it, I thought it was pretty reasonable, looked good. It turned out it had lots of issues. Lots and lots of issues. And so students were having problems. They were coming to me. I was selecting them. I was getting the, the issues relating to that. And I felt, well, the students were being abused. They were asked to pay a lot for their book. And the book was just not good, not as good as it could be. And then I called up the editor. I said, okay. You called them up and said, well, your book has issues. And they said, no, it doesn't. 
Yes, it does. I teach from it. I'm a subject matter expert. No, it doesn't. And this happened for five minutes, bouncing back and forth. Finally, they said, oh yeah, we have some, we have a list of errata. Why didn't you lead with that? Why did you make me go through this game? And I got off the phone and the first thing I said is I can do a better job. Now that's hubris. And little did I know what that actually entailed. But then I started thinking, okay, how would I go about doing that? At the time, Wikipedia was just starting to crank up. It exists in different forms than that, but it really started to get in academia. And they had the standard, Wikipedia is bad, don't use it, and all the stuff that we may remember from that time. But the one thing that I picked up on is I have loads and loads of students. My large general chemistry class is 500 students. So if I were to motivate just 20%, 10% of those students in order to start writing and contributing to it, and I used a wiki-based approach, which is the ideal technology for large-scale collaborative construction efforts to do exactly what I want to do, I can do that. So we started to do that. So I did what's now referred to as open pedagogy. And in fact, we've used five to 10,000 students that have contributed to the LibreText project over, over the last 15 years. We are celebrating our 15th year birthday this year. Or not this year, this week, but we don't typically tell very many people about the open pedagogy approach of it. We have a lot of best practices that we're going to try to tie together in order to be able to really scale that up because we learned a lot from that. But anyways, the point is it was just a merging of several different things. Someone irritated me. I was looking for the right time. I was motivated in order to be able to do it because I had, I grew up poor and I had lots of issues associated with my growth that really made me want to be progressive and change the system, break the system, whatever you want to call it. And it just basically all worked. So you started obviously with chemistry. What prompted you to go beyond chemistry? Interest, not necessarily my interest, but lots of other people who were asking me about that. So the ChemWiki was the precursor and that's what mm -hmm. we started. And that existed for about three years. We set up a little server in the corner of my lab. I had, I've always relied on talented students, students that know a lot more about things than I did because I was trained in chemistry. I wasn't trained in being able to set up a web server or to do system administration or do that other stuff. So I relied on very talented students that were willing to volunteer for that. So I was in the corner of my lab and it was running fine. And then people started to ask, what about physics? And so we expanded in our third or fourth year into the other departments that are part of the division that I was in, which was the division of physical sciences. So we had math, statistics, geology, biology was one off that I added into it. And I'm thinking I'm missing another wiki, but that was it. So we had the bio wiki, geo wiki, stat wiki. Math wiki, it started getting very wiki oriented in the way that we were doing things. And did you ever envision that you'd be doing what you're doing now in terms of having a much bigger platform and all of its you know, intricate parts? Part of the deal of being an R1 professor is that everything has to be proposed to be big, right? And so whenever we make proposals, we always lay it on really thick with lots of icing and talk about where everything's going to go. Now, whether it goes that way, it rarely does, but we always have grandiose plans off of that. So I always had plans that I used to refer to taking over the world or world domination was the term I used. It turned out that I offended too many people to say that I wanted world domination. This is the right path for world domination. But nonetheless, some people didn't exactly like me talking like that. So I stopped that parlance. But I always had the dream that it was getting big, but I never really understood that meant sucking the lifeblood out of me in order to maintain the project at the level that it is, is going. It's beautiful to see where it's going, but it's really quite a lot of work in order to do it. Yeah. And I've seen instances where I see online where people have had work 
locked up in other platforms and you've made some really heroic efforts to be able to bring them into to Lee Reverse. Is that part of the mission too? I always think I love every time I see it, it's free the textbook and it's that's a nice little flip on the free textbook approach. That's the philosophy there, isn't it? Yeah, it's always been our philosophy. The mechanisms have changed a bit. So in, in the beginning, it was all open pedagogy. Then it started to change into people who contributed stuff. So we'd find content on the internet. We would ask the author for permission to bring them into our site, and then we'd bring them in. And the idea was to try to grow in that way, just by sheer chance. And like I said, I really didn't know what I was doing when I was doing these things. But what I was doing was perfect for search engine optimization, because what we were doing is we were creating a lot of content uh, because the students were creating it and it was a lot of unique content and it was constantly being updating. And that right there was what started to make Google recognize us. And then that became this partnership that I had with Google in which we benefited greatly from search engine optimization, or at least from Google searches that we didn't try to game the system in any way whatsoever. It just happened naturally. But then we started to change in our mechanisms. So after a few years, the first year or two, it was students driven. Okay. Then we started to go out and ask people in order to get permission in order to do something. And at that time, Creative Commons was growing a lot. And it became clear to us that we don't have to ask because technically, when you put a Creative Commons entry on something, you're essentially putting a free sign that's sticking outside with caveats in order to use it properly. But you're essentially giving pre-permission pre in order to bring it in. So we start bringing them in. The key point that we do here is that the effort of bringing it into our platform is actually a fairly time-intensive process because we bring in content from PDFs or from websites or from latex source or from press books. And it's a wide variety of things. We bring them in and then we have to go through and digest them and bring them into a proper standard. So that whole process we call harvesting, which is a term that some people also don't like, but nonetheless... It provides a good description of the efforts necessary in order to be able to go through this process and put it into place. As OER started to grow, we started to also continue the harvesting efforts in order to grab as much OER subject to what the O is and OER and bring it into our platform and benefit from it. That provided a very powerful approach because it was centralized. So you went to one source in order to find it. And that right there provided the best way in order to curate the content. So this is the big issue here is that we're not a platform with the end goal is to just publish something. We're not a publishing platform where you basically say, here it is, you publish it, and we're done. We're in academia. We recognize that's the start of the issue. That's not the end game. And the, we need to go through curation efforts. We need to constantly update. We need to constantly curate because there, everything needs to be updated. And what one person thinks is the right level for the quality of a book can become very different from a different person who has the same book. It's a constant active thing. And because we are subject matter experts, not in every subject matter, of course, but we have lots of people on our team in order to do that, we're constantly updating and curating our content. And that right there distinguishes us from other platforms that essentially that's not their game. Their game is here it is, you use it, give us the money and we're done. And it's actually the hard part is the curation effort. Posting it is actually not that hard in order to be able to go through the effort off of there. And that's the time-consuming effort that really, I think, is, is our niche. And I feel very strongly is necessary for the communities so that we're able to curate, we're able to move it forward. And more importantly, and I'm going to get off the soapbox in a second here, is that when you have things decentralized, it makes it difficult in order to progressively move better. Like for example, if you have 10 copies of the same book, 
in 10 different campuses and 10 different instructors. And one instructor improves one thing. And then how does the next instructor, one of the other 10, how do they know that it's improved? If it's decentralized and there's no effective infrastructure in order to facilitate revision control or communication or propagation, it's essentially you have not every step forward is truly a step forward for the progress. And this is the issue that I have with many of the approaches in OER in general, is that we are doing lots of progress, lots of updating that's not really going into the central corpus that's moving things forward. Centralizing is one way, not the only way, but is one way in order to be able to address it. And that's the way that we go about doing so. But that's also a painful, more painful way in order to go about doing so. Oh. So the upshot of all that thing is that bit off far more than I could chew. <laughs> and fortunately, we had lots of other people come on board in order to be able to help us move forward with that because our development team is a great development team. The curation team that's around the development team is great. We have somewhere between 50 to 100 undergraduate students that are actively helping to curate, update, whether it's accessibility, other issues across the board. And that's the nice thing about running this through the university and such. So I'll stop with there. And I'm saying that it's a big bite that, that we've started. Oh, we might tell you to stay on the soapbox, but I just love hearing this. What you describe, maybe to understand all the components, not all the components, but you describe it as the Libreverse because it's more than a textbook. What's all in the constellation of services or abilities that you add to this content? In order to answer that question, it's important to know where we came from, actually where we are, not where we came from. I'm a practitioner, right? Not only do I care about the platform in order to be able to create and distribute OER, I use OER. I haven't used a commercial textbook in 10 years. So I'm constantly updating, constantly utilizing it, which means that I have a very practitioner oriented perspective around OER, which is oftentimes not the perspective that you get when you talk to librarians, you talk to commercial companies and, things like that. and they have their own perspectives that are of value, of course, but nonetheless, the practitioner's perspective is the perspective that we have when we go about that. So most of the people that we have on our team are academics in one form or another and have a great interest in and have used OER in the classroom that's out there. It was clear a long time ago that the nature of the textbook was evolving. And 15 years ago, when I started paying attention to this as a faculty member, that the nature of the textbook is evolving. The publishers knew this. They started to expand the scope of their portfolio. So instead of saying, here's a physical book that they would go through, they started recognizing that the digital revolution that existed is changing the way that they were going to be distributing content. And they also recognized that they needed to diversify into value-added components around their textbook where homework is one of the principal components behind that. But there are other components that they want to be able to bring in. So oftentimes those companies would purchase other companies or they would actually start up new initiatives in order to be able to build that. And then when you actually go to the big three or the big four companies and you ask what they actually provide, they come out with this portfolio of things. Here's the ancillary materials. Here's the homework system. Here's a question bank. Here's the textbook. Here are interfaces to clicker-based systems and a handful of other things, and they start to add other value-added components. Soon there's going to be AI, and there's going to be other things that are going to be connected to it. And if you want to compete with commercial publisher, which is essentially what textbook OER is involved in, you need to be able to have that same portfolio out there. The issue is that's a lot of effort in order to build a portfolio like that and a portfolio that's good. I should be clear, it's able to handle the practitioner's needs. And so we knew that we wanted to build this for a long time to go beyond just a conventional textbook that's out there. But like I said, I'm not a tech person, so it took me a while in order to be able to figure out 
what's the way in order to go about doing things. We went through multiple dead ends, of lots of technologies that didn't work. We tried to partner with individuals that were only looking at making money off of students. And that's a big no-no for us. Not that you don't need sustainability, but we don't want to view our students as a market in order to make a profit off of. And the same thing applies to faculty, to be honest, as far as I'm concerned. We just slowly grew it and started to play around with different technologies and started to identify what was going on. But the game changer was really five years ago when we got this $5 million investment from the U.S. Department of Education. And that gave us a lot of freedom. If you look at that proposal that we put together, we had five thrusts and one thrust dealt with technology and it had a homework system. I had this and I had that and lots of things like that. And the Department of Education gave us a lot of freedom, especially after COVID really kicked up because that really scrambled a lot of people's plans and goals in order to be able to pursue what we were doing. And we started to expand and pursue things that I'm very to present on and discuss. And just... Uh, Last week, we announced another $4 million investment from the state of California in order to expand the homework system that we are building partially with the U.S. Department of Education money and partially with the state of California, this ADAPT homework system, and really scale it up massively. We're very excited about where that's going to be going. And then I think what was may have been announced earlier today, but certainly will be discussed in a few days, is that we're working with the technical colleges in Wisconsin for expanding ADAPT for nursing with the new protocols that are changing for the, the nursing assessment infrastructure. Then we had new people that came in that knew a lot more about technology than I did and just basically really improved what we were doing across the board. I'm very excited about what the Libreverse is and where it's going. It's recognizing that you need a holistic perspective in order to be able to address what the practitioner needs. And again, we are lucky in that we are practitioners, so we short circuit that design step in terms of what the practitioner needs and what we do because we, we already know what we need to do it. Plus, I also get to beta test it in my class, much to the displeasure of some of my students. It's refreshing to hear that, that this is coming from your practice. It's not coming from trying to do something financially or just to generate a product. Can you tell us more about ADAPT that was the new grant is funding and Excited to see that you're working with the OpenRN people because I'm oh, yeah. really impressed with the work that they do. But what exactly does ADAPT do? So we knew that we needed to have a homework system to accompany our textbooks. Like I said, we knew that for a long time ago. We had proposed in the U.S. Department of Education grant, this open textbook pilot grant, to build the homework system. And we proposed to base it off of web work, which is a open source technology that originated at the University of Rochester. Maybe Mike Gage, who put it together, has now expanded to lots of people. And uh, we started to pursue that and we started to look and identify that, that there were merits on a range of different technologies out there and limitations on each of the technologies. Fast forward a couple of days, not a couple of days, a couple of years. And then we, we ran for an RFP that was released by the state of California for building a homework system that, or at least the way we interpret it, is build a system up or platform in order to address equity gaps in the state. And we decided that we wanted to propose uh, an infrastructure based around adaptive learning that had culturally responsive pedagogy integrated into it that was able to address the needs of the textbook. This was a $1 million grant. Typically, you would need more money in order to be able to do this sort of thing. But we were fortunate that we had a significant, it's already done from the U.S. Department of Education in order to push that forward. 
And I had some nice talent on my team. We built an infrastructure that we called ADAPT because it has, I would say, s- simple adaptive learning capabilities. It doesn't have a black box engine. It has a, what I refer to as a choose your own adventure story, which is a decision tree approach that students get to take agency in order to guide their education, which I like a lot more than spoon feeding from a black box. The intent is that instead of giving individual questions, students get a question. If they get it wrong, they can go into a, a remediation tree in order to help guide them in terms of understanding what's necessary, what are the skills that they need in order to be successful with that question. And then they can decide which uh, of the branches they want to go down. It helps to build metacognition. It helps to build self-efficacy. It builds agency that I like students to be involved in their education instead of just being, again, spoon-fed. That has expanded a bit, but that's the basic essence behind what ADAPT was meant to do. The issue that we had was, what technology do we want to do for the assessment infrastructure? Do we want to build our own technology behind it? And our opinion from that was a silly idea that there were already good technologies out there that we can capitalize on. The web work was one of them. IMath AS, which is the technology underlying MyOpenMath that David Lippman put together at Pierce mm-hmm. College in, in Washington State, is a beautiful alternative. H5P had good capabilities. And then we wanted to pursue QTI, so question and test interoperability, which is the protocol used for learning management, and build our own technology above that. So the intent was to make it so that all these technologies can play underneath the ADAPT tent and that instructors can come in and select what questions they want and not have to care about what the technology is that actually implements it. If they want to build a question, they build the question in the technology that best suits what they want. And that could be H5P if you're less familiar with coding or if you're comfortable with coding in PHP or in Perl, you'll go IMath AS or web work respectively. And that's the basic essence of that. But we've been expanding the scope in order to be able to be as powerful as we want to be, integrate to learning management systems. We'll be releasing a phone app soon, which is something I've been wanting for a long time because I want to be able to make it so I can use it for in-class clicker activities. But it also gives the ability to capitalize on the phone's camera so we can actually take pictures and upload it directly to adapt off of that. The new influx of funds will be used in order to expand mostly in STEM, although the non-STEM fields come along for the ride. In chemistry, we must start building in new technologies for being able to create molecules and submit molecules. We have a virtual dissection technology that we're going to be implementing for anatomy and biology related topics, building some more capabilities for math using GeoGebra and other things. So it's going to be a real everything underneath the tent, but we're fortunate that we have the talent, we have the technology, and now we have the support in order to be able to do this thing. And it's free for every student and every faculty in the state of California. Any faculty member can access the database in order to be able to take that. But as a sustainability model, if they're outside the state of California, then we want, I think it's like 2 to or $3 per month in order to be able to maintain it. Because it's a lot of servers and things in order to be able to maintain. If people outside of California are interested, they can get into it then. Oh, definitely. We let them run them for free. It's not that big of a deal. It's just that we do need to have some sustainability model in order to maintain the infrastructure that we put in place. Every Everybody needs a sustainability model. I was very intrigued when you shared last year or, or earlier all the translations that, that you're doing, especially for the Ukraine situation. Has that been advancing? Where do you see the translation capabilities going? Yeah, that's really cool stuff. I like it. For, I really like it. I knew five years ago, or at least I wanted five years ago in order to 
take what we've been doing in America and scale it up globally. When I mean we, labor tech specifically. Now, that being said, 50% of our traffic is outside of the U.S., mostly with countries that have English as the language or the lingua franca, so typically former Commonwealth countries and such. India is the second largest country that we have in terms of traffic. But we obviously recognize that there are lots of students in the world that don't speak English and that English may not be the most productive mechanism for this. So we set up a library dedicated specifically to another language about five years ago, four years ago, the Espanol library. Now I don't speak Spanish, or at least I poorly speak Spanish. So it's not entirely the best for me, but fortunately I had other people who were coming in. At the time we were doing human translations. So we took the OpenStax, the chemistry book, and we went through and we translated it. And we use students because there's a good return on investment. I've always used students for this. And then we can go through secondary steps in order to update that. So we translated the OpenStax chemistry book into Spanish. I think now that they also did the same thing, but it was a slow process. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of money in order to be able to do this and to scale this up to 500,000 pages that we currently have on our corpus would just be unbelievably expensive. And that's just for one language, but trying to scale it up for multiple languages is just basically outrageous. However. Last year, two AI-based machine translation algorithms have gotten pretty good. Are they perfect? No, they are not, but they are pretty good. And the argument that we had here, is it better to have 100,000 pages in a new language that's 95% good versus 20 pages that are perfect in that language? And the answer by far is it's much better to have many more pages that are able to help that students can actually get through a little bit of the clunkiness in order to be able to advance that. We've been eyeing machine translation for a while, but the Ukraine situation provided us with an opportunity. It was obviously a very bad situation over there in order to couple with Amazon. Uh, so Amazon had a machine translation infrastructure and then coupled with MindTouch or NICE as CX1, the company that actually hosts our central libraries in order to be able to make a new library that was completely machine translated. Uh, and we did that in Ukrainian. Again, Amazon was the one that comped it. The X1 was the one that hosted it. And then we generated it and we had extra credits. And we said, we had extra credits. Let's just do Spanish while we were at it. So we did Spanish while we were there. And then we did 15 or 20 books in six other languages, Swahili, Chinese, Hindi, Arabic. And the idea behind this was not necessarily that this is the end product. It's not the end product. The point is that this is the beginning product because we're doing, we were operating on with wikis. Wikis are the best technology for large scale collaborative construction efforts. So now we've built an infrastructure so that we have the starting point. And now instead of trying to convince a faculty member or subject matter expert in another country that is comfortable or obviously with their own language in order to start and translate from scratch, they can then go into a page that already pre-exists and start to do the editing in order to be able to improve that. And that is a much lower bar. So that means that we're able to take this approach and scale this up to actually get our corpus of content distributed broadly across the world. But this requires us to build an infrastructure in order to be able to, to recruit faculty or students in other languages in order to update that. We have started that, but we haven't really started to scale it up in part because our money sources are not dedicated toward those sort of things. The U.S. Department of Education, the state of California, their constituencies are in the state and in the U.S., so we're looking for some sort of support in order to be able to, to push that so we can actually really scale it up. Otherwise, it's going to be slowly moving forward 
the first five years of our existence, we had no money at all. So we're comfortable in order to run projects that have no, no significant investment of funds in order to be able to do it because it just comes in naturally off of here. But we can scale things up massively if we have the right partners in order to be able to. And we're already starting to talk about that in terms of Africa with the French and the Portuguese countries in Africa and start to really be able to move this forward. I will mention that as soon as we did that update for the Espanol library, our traffic increased fourfold, basically over that month. So there was a need for that, and we have a great excitement in order to be able to scale it. Not quite the server in the one room now. Oh, it's definitely <laughs> not the server in the one room. And so everything's in the cloud with Amazon or DigitalOcean and such. Yeah. This is exciting. I would ask questions for a long time. I really uh, want to thank you for being here. We have like guests in the studio. I don't know if anybody wants to ask a question of Delmar. If you do, just let us know through chat or unmute. We wanted to make this interactive. I, I was kind of thinking the way you talked about your interaction with the first publisher. What do you hear from publishers? They do not talk to me. They don't talk to you. I had a Cengage <laughs> rep come, come by seven years ago the last time. Yeah. He came to my office and he wanted to give me the pitch. And I asked him, does he know who he's talking to? <laughs> I sat him down, explained it. He left and I never heard back from him again. So <laughs> publishers don't talk to me anymore. I think, uh, let's see, Shira Sigal, who's here from MIT, she wants to ask, and you can ask the question too, if you want, Shira. This is really rich. Thank you so much, Delmar. I'm so excited about all of these projects. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about your collaborations with graduate students and their role and importance in the work that you're doing? I use a lot of undergraduate students. And for reasons. One is that they give a great return on investment. It's also great pedagogy. So it helps to satisfy my educational mission. But the last thing is it provides me an opportunity to fire them if they don't do their work. Students have a lot more protections. So my experience with graduate students have been lukewarm in various ways because in terms of looking at the final outcome from that. So the way that I've used graduate students in the past, and I think I've had seven or eight graduate student quarters since I started is that they had to be able to fill a certain niche that I wasn't able to address myself. So something that was better than what an undergraduate student can do, but that I wasn't able to address in one way or the other. So most recently I had two graduating graduate students. So students that were right on the edge of getting their PhD, I should rephrase that one student for two quarters that was right around the edge of getting his PhD who is an organic chemist. So like I mentioned before, I'm a physical chemist, so organic chemistry is not my forte. And we were building an organic chemistry book that was based off of McMurray. This was before the McMurray book became OER, which is still not released, but once we get it, we'll start to release it within our portfolio. So we'll have a different flavor of McMurray's book, what we call a text map that follows the organization of McMurray's book. But we need a question to add in to adapt. So I used that student in order to create questions. So he created about 500 to 1,000 plus questions, I think, that was put into ADAPT that we still haven't released, although individuals who are on ADAPT can come in and take a look at that if you have an instructor account. It's not public. Most of the questions are on ADAPT. I've used students, one I was actually particularly interested in last, I think it was last fall, that had training in tutoring for standardized tests. And maybe the need for this is changing a little, little bit because standardized tests are coming out of, or more passe. But the, the interest that I had was, was more of a diversity issue that one could make serious arguments and they were made out there that students that are from marginalized backgrounds don't do as well on standardized tests as students that come from 
non-marginalized backgrounds. And there are multiple reasons for that. I wanted to see if we could take our infrastructure and make it so that we can provide some education for students that are from marginalized backgrounds. So basically create a course for how to do well on the SAT or the ACT or the GRE or whatever else that would be freely available to predominantly marginalized students, but be available to everybody. That would be then supplemented with ADAPT and goes through the infrastructure because it basically falls exactly in line. I still have a great interest in doing that, but we didn't continue it for a variety of reasons that's out there. But a graduate student who had the experience of tutoring in students for those days was the one that actually was putting those together. And I still very much believe in that topic. I think that might be one mechanism in order to try to address inequalities associated with standardization. It's just standardized exams have started to fall out of, of things. I could be wrong. I don't know if SATs are still being used around there. Those are two examples of how I use graduate students. Typically graduate students that come in with some specific expertise that I don't have access to are the best graduate students in order to be able to use. Otherwise, undergraduate students provide a much greater return on investment and provides me the opportunity that if they, if they fail to work, it can the financial hemorrhaging that's associated with that. The same issue also happens with postdocs and things like that. So if your postdocs are very clearly delineated for a specific topic, then it actually works quite well. It's just the protections are very intentionally by what protections are meant for, make it difficult in order to be able to address them in the issue that I can't do conveniently with undergraduate students. What are your interests outside of work and teaching? Like what keeps you busy? Actually, only it's only Libra text. Come that, on, I know you, you have yeah. a dog. I have one dumb dog and two apathetic cats. Yeah. I saw that on your Twitter, by the way. She's a dumb dog. <laughs> That's just the joke in the house. Is she? Actually, my, my wife tells me. I call her that. Uh, I don't think I have much of a right now. Pandemic really destroyed mm. all that, and it's taking a while in order to get forward. Right now, most of most of what I dream is dreaming text, much to the displeasure of my family, uh, except for my dog, who doesn't really seem to care. <laughs> too. Maybe the dog dumb, but we'll stop that. Marcella, <laughs> do you want to ask the? I want to highlight just a couple of things. I wanted to give a shout out to Jennifer for the wonderful submissions that she shared with us. We have 23 submissions from LibreText, and she did a wonderful job. So it's it's quite a bundle. So we're super excited that we are able to highlight those in Open Education Week and share with the community during this week, particularly since it's your 15th year anniversary. And we are so excited about that. And I just wanted to say congratulations. I've been a big fan of LibreText for a really long time. And it's just amazing to see how long it has come, how far it has come now. So happy anniversary. And the question is in also, as Shira was saying, what's next for LibreText? What is the one thing that you would like to see in the next 15 years uh, for LibreText to have? The one thing that you would say, yeah, hopefully in the next 15 years, that's something we are going to be able to offer. The dream we had. So one of the reasons that I was because of affordable education, and that was largely K-12 education, also obviously included post-secondary to college up and I think in order to have a systemic on the we address things in the K-12 space. Now, I'm not very comfortable in the K-12 space. And there's lots of really beautiful efforts in terms of OER and K-12, but K-12 OER is encumbered by lots of politics and lots of issues that I'm still relatively new. I very much would like to scale up, adapt in order to handle need at the end for those that don't have the money in order to be able to purchase the books or update the books or to capitalize on the technology that we have that's out there, whether they're marginalized or not marginalized, rate interest in order to be able to pursue that. My issue is I need to learn more about that and I need to 
to get some support in order to be able to pursue that. And we're already starting to look at that as several partners that we've established that we're hoping will actually cultivate into something that'll be significant by many parts of the Libreverse, especially this, what we call Project Solo, which is a standalone learning management system within H5P and a few other that my team has been putting together. So that's where I'd like to be able to, and then I'll go back to what I mean, people don't like me saying is world domination. So there's still a lot of global need for OER out there. There's a lot of OER in English, but there's less in many of the other languages. And there's a need in order to be able to address that. Not entirely clear from direction where I'm going to be able to get the support in order to do that, because it's going to be more philanthropic foundation, I think, from from that's out there. And since we don't we don't gouge people for access to the Libreverse and things like that, we're going to rely on the sustainability model in order to do a significant bulk. Those are my dreams. Yeah. And again, I want to thank you, Delma. So Shira and Allison, and I forgot this, my colleague, Marcella and Jennifer, and then on this conversation. <laughs> so I want to thank you for that's I'm talking to you as the audience who's listening to this when I edit for listening to this episode of OEG Voices, the podcast that we produce here at Open Education Global. So each episode, I pick a different musical intro track from the Free Music Archive because of Delmar's interest in chemistry. I found one called It's Okay, We Have Chemistry by an artist named Dr. Wiley, and it's licensed under Creative Commons and non-commercial share. And you'll find this episode at our site, OE Global. Again, if you follow up and engage in conversations with Delmar in OEG Connect, where I have seen him before and elsewhere on the internet. And again, we just appreciate you so much for spending the time with us, Delmar. 